We'll be in Isaiah again. We'll be in Isaiah 53. 53 uh, but we'll, this passage actually starts with the last three verses of Isaiah 52. So we're going to start in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Uh, and then we'll work all the way through chapter 53. Uh, I'm trying to do this fairly quickly, but not run, run through it. So we're... <coughs> Try and get through this uh, fairly quickly as we can. We'll start with these, reading these first uh, three verses, Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what, he, for what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. So first we see in, the, in these few verses. Now, this section is known as the, the Song of the Suffering Servant. And this is where the section begins. But it begins with telling that the, the servant, the servant of the Lord, will be exalted. Verse 13 promises that the Lord's servant will be exalted. Now, we have looked at other passages talking about the coming Messiah, about Emmanuel being promised, about Messiah coming to rule. The servant songs are about Messiah. So these are all tied together. And in this this back half of Isaiah is, is, if you can divide Isaiah evenly, it's chapters 1 through 39 kind of are Old Testament-ish, and verses 40 through 66 are more New Testament-ish, <laughs> okay? Then this is kind of the heart of the second half, is where we're at. Now, verse 13 here promises the Lord's servant, Messiah, will be exalted. And yet, they speak of a still future occurrence. They remind us of Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Colossians 3.1 if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. But verses 14 and 15 talk about what is known as the humiliation. They talk about his humiliation, his humbling and coming to earth. These verses discuss both past and future. Verse 14 discusses how the servant was disfigured or marred. He appeared inhuman. The word visage there, it's an older word, appearance. He appeared, his, his appearance was so disfigured and marred from the beatings that Christ took that he appeared almost inhuman. He didn't look human anymore. Isaiah talked about that a little bit earlier in verse in chapter 50, verse 6. 
I'm going to have that passage written out. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from any shame and spitting. Talking about some of the beatings there. And of course, we, we read about those, the scourgings and the beatings and the mockery that took place in the New Testament. We, uh, a couple of passages, Matthew 26, verses, uh, verses 67 where he is mocked and spit on and beat by the temple guards before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 27, verse 30, where he is, uh, and, chapter and John 19, verse 3, where he is beaten by the Roman guards before proceeding to the crucifixion. These beatings made him an astonishment to look on. It was shocking to look on him. You were astonished to see the beatings that took place. Of course, a Roman crucifixion was fairly common, so maybe not too astonished when you saw it. But verse 15 talks that though the suffering servant, that, that through these beatings, the suffering the servant took, the servant sprinkled many nations. Now this may be part of the sacrificial language in the passage. There's hints of it here and there in the passage. And, and there's a little bit of back and forth on here. This word sprinkle might actually be better translated as startled. Um, and there's, there's, there's some language back and forth there that, that's a little fuzzy, but uh, it may be better translated as startle. Thus, in his return, he will startle or shock the world because of the truth of who he is. They will recognize and be startled. And part of that would be the kings shut their mouths they're, they're shocked, they're surprised, they don't know how to respond. Think of, this brings to mind other passages. Uh, Zechariah 12, verses 9 and 10. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me... On whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. And then Revelation 7, chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So there is, we see the exaltation briefly. We briefly talk on his humiliation and the extreme portion of it and going through the sufferings and the beatings and a return on a future exaltation again. But as we walk now into verse 50, or chapter 53, we see that the servant came in humility. The servant came in humility. Who has believed our report? And to whom was the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, verse 1 appears to be questions, rhetorical questions from a group of believers. And in the immediate context, uh, believing Jews. But the first question highlights that report about the servant was astonishing, that, that astonishing things in it, in the, this report about the servant has astonishing things in it that are hard to believe, things that are hard to believe. Let's think about that for a second. Think about the report of the Messiah. Think about the elements of the Christmas story. Mary becoming pregnant through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to believe. The many angelic appearances and announcements. The angel appearing to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds, to the wise men. These are hard things to believe. The second question, again, it seems rhetorical and seems to imply that many have not heard of God's revelation, the arm of the Lord, the miraculous providential work to bring God's will about. And those that have received or understood are given the report. Again, think about the story. The, the shepherds telling everyone all that they had seen. The revelation to be given to them and they go out and tell. The wise men seeking the newborn king. They understood, likely, uh, if they were coming from the area of Persia, they may have had Daniel's writings and have been able to understand some of these things and they go to Jerusalem realizing that that star was important. Now, they went to Herod, but they also went. They revealed about it and they kind of reported about it if you think about that. But you, you can see that there are those who has received it? Who had received the revela God's revelation, the information about this, and that those who did are giving the report? Now, verses 2 and 3 briefly describe the servant's beginnings, and I'm using that word loosely. Verse 2 describes the humble upbringing not majestic or royal, not wealthy or prestigious. In other words, no silver spoon. No, it was a poor, common family. He was the supposed son of a carpenter who likely became a carpenter himself, at least by trade. He did not have formal religious training, likely not beyond Torah school. He wasn't anyone important to the world. Verse 3 discusses that he discusses his rejection. 
He was not wanted. He was despised by his own people and the Gentiles. He was rejected and not considered worthy. In verses 4 to 9, we see that the servant becomes a guilt offering. That the servant becomes a guilt offering. This is going to be filled with very familiar verses. Starting in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He, as so, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And, he will and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. <clears throat> and, they, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. <clears throat> Excuse me. The servant is here, is here described as taking the griefs and sorrows of the people. Excuse me. It's very interesting that in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, in Matthew 8, 16 and 17, these, this verse 4 of Isaiah 53 is quoted as part of proving that Jesus is the Messiah. In that passage, Matthew is recording, uh, this is following healing uh, Simon's, Simon's mother-in-law, and the whole town turns out, and he's healing, and he's, and he's uh, exercising demons, and he's spending all night doing this. And Matthew uses that account of those healings and quotes this verse and is using these to say, look, he is, he is bearing our griefs. He's dealing with our griefs, our sorrows, our diseases, our infirmities, and uses that as part of his proof that Jesus is the Messiah. The servant, Jesus, identified himself with the pain and griefs of sinners. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we seemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Essentially saying even though he was bearing our griefs and our sorrows, he was viewed as being under the curse of God. He took on a physical suffering. He was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was nailed to the cross. He was bruised or crushed as under a great burden for our iniquities. 
the weight of the sin of the world. He was chastised, punished for violating the law. He received stripes from the scourging and whipping. Yet he suffered spiritually as well. He bore our transgressions. The transgressions are the rebellious breaking of God's law. He bore our iniquities, our crooked nature. We don't walk straight. We don't follow a straight path. We are, because of our sin, we walk a crooked path. He bore our griefs and sorrows, all the calamitous, unhappy results of our sins. The servant was considered stricken and smitten of God, being under God's curse and judgment. Galatians 3.13. But the truth is that the servant bore the punishment for the sins of the world, for our sins. Verse 6 continues to explain, We are all sinners by birth. All we like sheep have gone astray. We all sin by Choice, we have turned everyone to his own way. That's each one following our own way and not seeking or following God. I don't know how long it took me to, to realize it, but I memorized that verse growing up. Like I'm sure many of you, a couple of you did, a few of you did. <laughs> And the way I memorized it, we turned everyone, everyone to his own way. I always understood of that as we've turned everyone to their own way. Not each of us are turning to our own way. And I don't know how long it took me to finally figure that out. But we as sinners are each going following our own path. So we sin by choice. We're not following or seeking God. So we are deserving of the punishment of these transgressions. But the cool thing about verse 6 is that it begins with our condemnation, but it ends with our salvation. And the Lord had laid on him the servant, Christ, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Though he didn't deserve any of the punishment, the servant went forward willingly. And that's what we see in, in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 shows us that he was treated roughly like a dangerous criminal, but he was treated unjustly and he was pushed from place to place. He started with the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. He was pushed to Pilate. Pilate said, he's Galilean, send him to Herod. I don't want to deal with it. So they march him across the city. Herod makes fun of him too because he won't do what he wants him to do and they push him back over to Pilate's. Yet he didn't open his mouth. 
Now, the, the Gospels do record that there's some brief interaction. He answers a couple of questions here and there's, but he didn't open his mouth. He didn't complain or argue for his rights. He went through it all silently like a submissive lamb to slaughter or a sheep to the shearers. We see in verse 8 the lack of justice in his, in his treatment. The idea of taken from prison or from confinement and from judgment. Not so much that he was, he was being led from prison, but it was a going away from judgment. The trial before the Sanhedrin was illegal and rigged with false witnesses. Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Later in the accounts, the, the, the chief priests urged the crowd on to force Pilate to crucify him. Then in verse 8, we see a question posed of the people of his generation, the people living at that time, and how they responded. And who will, and who will declare his generation? Most did not protest against Jesus' arrest or treatment. Those who were seeking his death had kind of thought through and knew what they were going to do to him because they had despised and rejected him. But on the large part, most other people observing it or interacting didn't, certainly didn't object, didn't protest. He was betrayed. His disciples forsook him and hid. The rest of verse 8 here, and he was cut off from the land of the living. brings us to his death there. His death was not glorious, but violent, and one reserved for heinous criminals and rebels. Verse 8 brings the first reminder that the servant willingly died, was stricken for the transgressions or sins of others. Again, we, we're going to see this kind of crop up again and again. He was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. The servant was considered to be a criminal and a rebel, so they expected him to receive a criminal's burial. Jesus would have been buried in an unmarked grave along with the other two thieves that were crucified with him had it not been for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who provided a grave among the wealthy and a proper burial. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. They expected him to be buried with the wicked, a criminal's grave. But he, but he received a rich man's tomb. Verse 9 ends with a reminder that Jesus was blameless of deceit and violence, yet this was how he was treated. 
because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, and yet that was how he was treated. And in verses 10 to 12, as we finish the chapter, we see the servant is victorious. The servant is victorious, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, we shall see, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. For the Lord shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a great portion with the great, or divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sin of many, and made intercession for transgressors. It pleased the Lord to bruise, crush the servant. The death pleased him. Not that he was happy about it, but that it allows for the work of salvation to be completed. The servant was an offering for sin, a guilt or trespass offering. This was an offering for sins committed unknowingly, and especially if restitution was possible. Jesus' death served as our trespass offering. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The success of the servant's task, according to God's plan, is seen in the blessings of God given him. A prolonged life after the servant's death. Now, the resurrection isn't specified in the passage, but may be implied. So there's the prolonged life that the Lord gives him. And seeing his seed, a spiritual family to those he had justified. John 1, 12. We read that passage earlier. In verse 11, we see that the servant justified many because he bore their iniquities. The death, the labor is how God's family of saved sinners is possible. These are God, these are the justified. Verse 12, we see that the servant receives a portion or an inheritance from the Lord. First, as a victorious Conqueror, he divides the spoils. There's reference to this in Ephesians 4, verse 8. Now, though he, the servant, was not highly esteemed on earth, Jesus was not highly esteemed on earth, but now he is among the great. Kings will bow to him. I would encourage you to read Psalm 72, verses 8 to 11. Psalm 2 describes Jesus' return and claiming of his inheritance. Then as we end verse 12, again, our attention is drawn to the labor, the work that is done that brings the reward and exaltation to the servant. First, he poured out his life, his soul, and died. 
Being sinless, the servant allowed himself to be grouped or numbered with the transgressors. He accepted the guilt load of sin to pay what the many could not pay. He made intercession for the transgressors. Now there's a future aspect to this last one, to, the, to this part, which is indicating a continuing work of intercession of, on behalf of the justified. Wearsby comments here, he made intercession for the transgressors, praying for them, Luke 23, 34, and 43. He did not speak when men cruelly reviled him, but he did speak for the sake of lost sinners. And today he is interceding for his own, Romans 8, 34. There is no judgment upon them because he bore it all himself. So the servant song, the song of the servant's suffering shows us the gospel and reminds us, even as we look at it today on Christmas Day, reminds us of why Christ came. 